0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland or you can phone 092713377 Buddhist Youth Association, Respectful, Beneficial, Empowering Hello and thanks for joining the program today. Hello and thanks for joining the program today. As you'll by now know, I'm a huge fan of Thich Nhat Hanh and his notion of interbeing, which, in more traditional Buddhist terms, we might say, is dependent arising. Nothing exists from its own side, but is a coming together of other things, like causes, conditions, parts, and even the labelling mind. In our last program, while considering the text, the three principal aspects of the path by Lama Kappa, we took as a starting point. Thich Nhat Han's beautiful poem called Simply Love Poem. Today, perhaps as a contrast, I'd like to open with an article I found on the Nun Tupton Children's website, that's Tuptonchildren.org. The article is not by Tuptun Children herself, but by her assistant, Venerable Tuptun Damcho, and is about how she first came across the notion of dependent arising. What is interesting is that it wasn't in any Buddhist context but in a quite different Western environment, although it took a teaching by His Holiness to highlight the pervasiveness of dependent arising for her. However, before we go into discussing her experience, let's set our motivation as we usually do, so that our participation in the program doesn't become just another filling of time, but something that will benefit both ourselves and all those we connect with. So once again, let's bring to mind the concept of bodhicitta, the wish to gain enlightenment so we can be the greatest benefit for all beings and make that our motivation for today. But failing that, at least think of your own liberation from suffering and let that be your purpose for being with the program. Thank you. Now back to the article by Venerable Tupton Ch- Damcho. As Buddhists, we might think that we have some kind of entitlement to the notion of dependent arising, seeing how it takes such a central role together with selflessness or emptiness in Buddha's teachings. Lama Tsongkhapa is quite clear that a true understanding of the Buddha's teachings means seeing these two, that is, dependent arising and emptiness, as two different sides of the same coin. He writes, Appearances are infallible dependent arisings. Emptiness is free of assertions. As long as these two understandings are seen as separate, one has not yet realized the intent of the Buddha. When these two realizations are simultaneous and concurrent, from the mere sight of infallible dependent arising comes definite knowledge which completely destroys all modes of mental grasping. At that time, the analysis of the profound view is complete." However, just because we call ourselves Buddhist, we can't claim a monopoly on the notion of dependent arising or, for that matter, emptiness. This is proved by Venerable Tupton Dumcho's article, in which she says that she first came across teachings on dependent arising in a couple of courses she took at Princeton University in the United States. The first course was on medical anthropology, the field of study in which healthcare management is based on the first hand perspectives of all the people involved in situations colored by illness. A key concept is that illness is not only experienced by an individual alone, but is, and I quote, defined, understood, and managed within a social and cultural context, and has broader effects on the patient's family and society at large. The family in Anne Fadiman's book just such refugees from Laos who had settled in California. The community believes that during a fit an epileptic has contact with the spirit world and can use this contact to help others. Their name for epilepsy thus translates as the spirit falls down and catches you. They also believe that a human body contains many souls and during a fit one or more souls may be lost. So to recover those lost souls a shaman makes animal sacrifices and performs rituals for the person. Now you can imagine what happens when a family from this community with an epileptic member comes into contact with the Western healthcare system. The American doctors, knowing nothing and probably not caring to know about the traditional beliefs, were convinced they knew best and tried to treat the child with drugs. The parents, however, were suspicious and refused to administer the drugs, returning to traditional interventions instead. The doctors, of course, were horrified, and so eventually child protection services were called in, and they put the child in a foster home. By the time she was four and a half years old, the child had been admitted to hospital care 17 times and had been an outpatient 100 times. At four, she had a ground mal seizure and remained in a vegetative state until she eventually died in 2012 at the age of 30. So here we have one culture viewing an epileptic fit as a kind of spiritual event and so intervening spiritually, while a different culture sees it as, and I quote, a central nervous system disorder, that's a neurological disorder in which nerve cell activity in the brain becomes disrupted, causing seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations and sometimes loss of consciousness. And that's how the Mayo Clinic describes it and undoubtedly how the Western doctors treating the girl saw it. Venerable Tipton Dumcho writes, Aside from highlighting the need to address myriad causes and conditions when treating an individual's illness, such as family and culture, the story of the Muang family also d- demonstrates how different cultures place different labels on the same set of symptoms manifested by the body. To me... This is a clear example of the middle way view of how phenomena are empty of inherent existence because they arise dependent on causes and conditions and are merely labelled by the mind, yet they still function on a conventional level. She goes on, The field of medical anthropology does not deny that mental and physical experiences of illness exist, but it examines how different cultures conceive of and respond to those experiences. In particular, it questions whether Western medical science, which many of us in the developed world take for granted, indeed offers the best solutions regarding how to manage illness and the process of dying. She writes that by applying the principle of dependent arising to the study of health care, medical anthropologists have made public health care more effective and also brought into focus where our contemporary Western approach to medical science gets ethically fuzzy. For example, she cites Partners in Health, a non-profit organization founded by anthropologist and medical doctor Paul Farmer, which she says, and I quote, has successfully brought cures for AIDS and tuberculosis to the developing world because it works closely with local communities, defying assumptions that the poor cannot manage treatment for chronic diseases. She also names Organ's Watch, an organization that keeps a close eye on the global trafficking of human organs. She writes Poor people in developing countries are enticed into selling their organs for a quick buck, only to have long term health problems that they cannot manage. Dr. Lawrence Cohen is one of the founders of Organs Watch, and late last century he did some research on organ trading in what was known as the Kidney Belt region of southern India. Here, The trade basically runs between poor people, often rural women, and hospitals or wealthy recipients, often from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh or the Gulf states. He found that although these poor people traded their kidneys to free themselves from debt or to support their families, it didn't really help. Soon afterwards, they would be back in the same situation as before. Still, most sellers told Dr. Cohen that they would do it again if it meant they could support their family. They felt they didn't have much choice. In some neighbourhoods, the structure of debt appears to rest on kidney selling, said Dr. Cohen, since lenders would advance money knowing their organs were collateral. But I argue that the money from kidneys doesn't really get these families out of debt. Moreover, there was no follow-up care after the operation nor efforts to prevent infection in the donor. Not only that, but the donors were not told of the cost of maintenance drugs like cyclosporine that suppresses immune reactions to transplants and so could find themselves even more in debt after the operation. Dr. Cohen called the sale of body parts by the poor the wages of poverty. Now what has this got to do with dependent arising? In her article, Vener- Venerable Tupton Chojan writes, As Western medical science becomes globalized, corporatized and increasingly profit-orientated, the field of medical anthropology calls attention to the underlying structures of power that prevent equal access to proper health care in different societies and questions whether it is ethical for humanity to perpetuate such systems. Basically, if we take no notice of the dependent nature of all things and thus their interconnectedness, we do things for short-term gain that will result in great difficulties and suffering in the long term. The point is, of course, that those of us who take advantage of others' suffering are only laying the foundations for our own future misery. That is dependent arising at work, and we may do well to remember the quote from Geshe Sonam Rinchen that came towards the end of our last program. The greater your understanding of dependent arising, he said, the more convinced you will be about the connection between actions actions and their effects. You will respect it because you recognize that through the natural law of dependent arising, positive actions yield agreeable results and negative ones disagreeable results. The other course that impressed Venerable Tupton Damcho with its illustration of dependent arising during her university study was called Globalization and Asia. It showed how globalization, which appears to be quite a modern phenomenon, actually has its roots in colonialism that began more than a century ago. She writes, The cause also challenged the labels that we place on different parts of the world and take for granted. For instance, our professor highlighted how the landmass we now call Asia is a construct of colonial history, as it is a conglomerate of vastly different countries with little in common, except for the fact that they are not Europe. We also examined how the label the West can be employed fluidly depending on the context. For example, Japan might be referred to as being part of the West as a modern developed nation but can also be referred to as part of Asia because of its cultural heritage. She continues, going further, the course took apart the labels we place on different parts of the world based on the theory of material progress and development that there is a first world, second world and third world. It challenged the underlying assumption that all nations are supposed to move towards first world status based on certain material indicators. Our professor pointed out that these labels did not arise independently but have their roots in colonial history where one part of the world became enriched based on the oppression of another. She said the course also questioned what we, as part of the First World, proudly take to be universal human rights and the things we do to others under the excuse of upholding those rights. They could sometimes, she writes, be a pretext to justify war against a less developed country in the same way that colonial powers claim to be civilizing barbaric natives when carrying out conquests to advance their own economic interests. This puts me in mind of an interview with a newly elected Patriarch of the Chaldean Christian Church in Iraq in December 2003. The Patriarch had had used both the terms liberation and occupation in talking about the invasion by the United States and its allies of Iraq and the interviewer asked him to clarify what he meant. The Patriarch replied, Politically, we've been liberated from the old regime. In fact... We are occupied, and a people, any people, likes to be liberated but does not like to be occupied. To explain the situation, let me recount an incident. After the fall of Baghdad, there was a meeting between an assistant of Paul Bremer, who was the head of the American Civil Administration in Iraq, and 450 Shiite, Sunni and Christian representatives of the Iraqi people. I was also present, along with Monsignor Wardoni. At a certain point, one of the 450, a Muslim, raised his hand and asked, Are you here as liberators or as occupiers? And added, I want a precise answer, clear. Then the American representative began to reply with a long maze of words to say, in effect, that it was an occupation. A few few days before, in fact, President Bush had said that the USA was an occupying force and that he certainly couldn't claim to be a liberator. So all of the 450 immediately abandoned the meeting in protest, and Bremer's assistant was left alone. Today, however, both Bush and Bremer are very careful to describe themselves as the ones who liberated us from a political regime. So they say. And do the people perceive them in this way? asked the interviewer. The patriarch replied, The people have suffered and still suffer. The Allies, when they arrived, dismantled the army, the police, the structure of government and of the Ba'ath Party. This meant that a million families, that's about five million Iraqis, suddenly found themselves without the means of sustenance. We tried to make the Americans understand that things couldn't go well in that way. Now I think the Iraq War must be a supreme modern example of what happens when actions are undertaken without dependent arising being seriously and deeply considered. It would be difficult to quantify the amount of suffering that has taken place and is still taking place because of the actions of the countries that invaded Iraq. In any case, Venerable Tupton damcha points out how her course made her rethink her perception of the world and her assumptions about progress in society and culture. She completes her article with this paragraph. Interestingly, Taking these two courses primed my mind such that when I first heard teachings on dependent arising at a workshop on the Heart Sutra, they made perfect sense. What I found astounding was the Buddha's teaching that this principle applies not only to specific phenomena like illness or global politics, but to all phenomena. Even more mind-blowing to me is the teaching that what we call the self, which is dependent on this body and mind we cherish so dearly, is also a dependently arisen phenomenon, arising dependent on causes and conditions, parts, and is merely labelled and conceived of by the mind. I'm still wrapping my head around seeing the self as dependently arisen, but certainly from the courses I have taken at college, I believe we would do well to follow His Holiness's advice and apply our understanding of the centuries-old principle of dependent arising to the study of contemporary fields of knowledge." Perhaps the most urgent crisis we are currently facing is climate change and what we must do to manage it if we can. It's pretty obvious dependent arising has played a major part in global warming and whatever we do to manage it will also have to be based on dependent arising. We ignore dependent arising at our peril. In any case, I'm in no position to solve that particular knotty problem so let's get back to Lama Tunkhapa's three principal aspects of the path. We return to the verses we read earlier in the program, the first two of of the last four of the text. Appearances are infallible dependent arisings, emptiness is free of assertions, as long as these two understandings are seen as separate, one has not yet realized the intent of the Buddha. When these two realizations are simultaneous and concurrent, from the mere sight of infallible dependent arising comes definite knowledge, which completely destroys all modes of mental grasping. At that time, the analysis of the profound view is complete. By appearances, here Lama Tsongkhapa means anything that appears to our senses and mind. Whatever appears comes into being and exists only dependent on things other than itself. The word infallible means that nothing that we experience is independent. Nothing exists purely from its own side. Everything that appears to us arises independence. When we use analysis to try and find how something exists all we can find is the causes, conditions and parts and the label that we put onto it. We cannot find any inherent or independently existing thing. So what for instance is epilepsy? Is it a door to the spirit world through which one of many souls can escape and from which humans can receive spiritual guidance? Or is it a central nervous system disorder in which nerve cell activity in the brain becomes disrupted, causing seizures or periods of unusual behavior, sensations, and sometimes loss of consciousness. We might feel that our highly developed scientific view is right, and that the spiritual view is just hocus pocus, but that's merely opinion, and somewhat arrogant opinion at that. Even though we can show the electrical impulses in the brain during a seizure, can we prove? That there is nothing spiritual about it. No, our scientific method actually has nothing to say about the spirituality of an epileptic fit, because it basically has nothing to say about spirituality. Spirituality is not its field of inquiry, which only encompasses that which can be measured and to a certain extent described. Similarly, without understanding Western medicine, the Hmong may be suspicious of drugs and invasive surgeries which to them interfere with the spiritual well-being of the person. Their system has nothing to say about scientific method. The phenomenon epilepsy is experienced and defined by how it's perceived and labelled and as Venerable Tipton Damche wrote, different cultures place different labels on the same set of symptoms manifested by the body. This ultimately creates very different results in terms of how these symptoms are experienced and treated. But what does this say about epilepsy itself and how it exists? Can we pinpoint a thing called epilepsy that is not a result of spiritual manifestation or of unusual nerve cell activity in the brain or of the chain of events leading up to either or both of these? When we look for epilepsy, we cannot find any one thing to point to and say, that is it, that and that alone is epilepsy. It is a coming together of all sorts of events and experiences that cumulatively are labelled epilepsy. Does this mean that epilepsy doesn't in fact exist? Well, if that was the case, how could anybody experience an epileptic fit? In explaining these two different ways of seeing a phenomena, that is, a dependent arising but is empty of inherent existence and non-existence, Geshe Sonam Rinchen says the understanding of dependent arising and the unfailing way that causes and conditions produce their effects is a recognition of conventional reality, while the understanding that everything is empty of true existence is an understanding of the ultimate mode in which things exist. The way in which these two understandings apprehend their objects differ, he writes, so long as they seem incompatible and your understanding of a thing's dependently arising nature appears to undermine your understanding of its emptiness of true existence and vice versa, you still have not gained insight into what the Buddha intended to reveal, nor have you found the correct view of the middle way. This is an indication that you must persevere. In other words, keep on studying, contemplating and meditating. Eventually, as we continue practicing, the two understandings will grow closer and closer and we will finally come to a point where when meditating on a single object we will be able to see both simultaneously. As geshe says, you understand that things exist as mere nominal imputations and that virtue produces happiness and non-virtue suffering. Yet when the imputed object is sought, no form of objective existence can be found. These two aspects, appearance and emptiness of intrinsic existence characterize everything that exists. Now you recognize and apprehend them together. Through the force of your understanding of the unfailing way in which things arise dependently, the fabricated object to which the misconception clings is destroyed. The understanding of emptiness and the understanding of dependent arising have a reciprocally strengthening effect through which it becomes ever clearer that the self, while lacking all intrinsic existence, is a viable agent of action and experiencer of results. This means that the object we experience as existing solidly, independently and from its own side, through our ignorance and misconception, no longer appears like that at all. We actually experience it as only coming together of other things, including our labelling of it and recognise experientially that it has no inherent existence of its own. When we examine our concept of self in this light, we see that there is actually no truly existent self at all. And yet, because of that, and because we ourselves, our actions and our experience are all dependent, we will experience happiness from virtuous actions and suffering from non-virtuous actions. Returning to the geshe commentary to the text, we find that he talks about the various ways some of the terms have been taught by different masters. He writes, The qualification of emptiness as being free from all assertions may be taken to mean that words cannot describe emptiness as it is. It can also refer to emptiness free from any intrinsic existence. Some early masters in Tibet who subscribe to the Majamika view that everything is empty of inherent existence, found it difficult to posit conventional existence. They contended that since all phenomena are empty, they cannot be specified as this or that, as either existent or non-existent, and the proponents of the middle way hold no position, since they propound emptiness free from all assertions. He then comments on the line in the next verse that reads, completely destroys all modes of mental grasping. This could mean that the very understanding of everything arising dependently and being merely labelled by mind on a suitable basis brings certainty of the lack of any inherent existence. It thus, and I quote, demolishes true existence and the mode of apprehension which clings to true existence. On the other hand, he continues, this line might be read as meaning that the understanding of dependent arising destroys the way the object is perceived with certitude. Both any possibility of true existence and the certitude with which true existence is perceived are destroyed by the understanding of dependent arising. These different interpretations by past masters are possible because the Tibetan is extremely succinct, he writes. Although a legal code, for instance, should be clear-cut as possible to avoid ambiguity, from a Buddhist point of view it is considered an advantage if a text is open to various interpretations. This is seen as a mark of its profundity, and the exploration of different exegesis can extend and enrich our understanding. We only have two more verses of the text to go before it's finished, but we're now coming close to the end of our time together here today, so I'm going to end with a poem from Thich Nhat Hanh's anthology, Call Me By My True Names. Its content has little to do with dependent arising, but something to do with frogs. It's called Froglessness The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness, he writes. When a frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It is difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging, but you and I both have frog nature in us. That is why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness, is its name. And so, with a wish that you may quickly attain froglessness, I thank you for joining the program today and hope you'll tune in again next week. Please, as you go, dedicate any positive potential from the program to the enlightenment of all beings.